Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing show. This week we're tackling the subject or myth-busting the subject of five of the biggest misbeliefs in the stock market. You're gonna be blown away when you start to see as we unravel how deeply held some of these misbeliefs are and how they stop people actually getting ahead and achieving what they deserve in life purely and simply because their belief system is based on something that is wrong. I know you're gonna enjoy the show. It's certainly gonna be contentious. We'll see you in there. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider, Mr. Mitchell Lorenzo. Thank you, Mr. Baxter, and it's a pleasure to be your offsider today. I'm gonna to need your expertise because there's something uh, need to cover here, that is the five biggest stock market myths debunked. Oh, this could be fun. I know. I wonder what they are. This is gonna be a cracker. Now, I tell you, I mean, you and I hear this stuff all the time, new clients, you know, oh, this, that, whatever, but the fact is, a lot of it's not true. That's right, there are a lot of misbeliefs about most things in life and people are so dyed in the wool with those misbeliefs because they've heard them for such a long time. Sure. I think uh, Christopher Columbus said the world was round and everyone laughed at him because the misbelief at the time was that it was flat. <laughs> Had he not have done it, we wouldn't have discovered America, we wouldn't have an orange president that likes Twitter and the world would be a very different place. Well, funnily enough, there's still those flat earth society people to believe in that. But parking that to the side for a second, Let's kick it off, let's get straight into it. This is gonna be a really fun podcast. And look, obviously you've had 27 plus years experience, so let's get your real life take on some of these myths. Okay, I'm excited. I'm nervous too, what have we got? Number one, investing is like gambling, true or false? Yeah, no, I'd probably say it's false. I'd hope so. <laughs> uh, but for a lot of people it becomes true, and here's why. Um, if you think about gambling, you know, you put down a stake and if you're right, you get a return on that stake and if you're wrong, you lose all your money. Sure. And for some people that aren't educated, I think trading and investing can be like that. If they get it wrong because they don't understand risk management, they run the risk of losing their money. Uh, for our clients, and we really pride ourselves on the amount of schooling that we put in on risk management, whether that's using stocks, whether it's using put options for protection and, and various other things in there, yeah, your downside risk is actually contained to a relatively small amount. So your downside is pretty negligible. Your, your upside is really not fixed either. And again, that's the difference with gambling. You know, if the odds are three to one, you get three times your stake or sure. you lose your stake. Um, in trading, well, who knows what your upside is going to be? You can't determine that in advance. And we did that with some of our strategies, of course, but your downside's also covered. So add then in to the fact that by using some solid analysis, you're able to sort of tilt the odds, if you will, in your favor. Um, you're definitely not on the pump. You're actually constructing a pretty well-shaped view and you're mitigating risk on the way. So no trading and investing the way that we teach and the way that we do, definitely not gambling. Well, look, thank you very much. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess even putting it in one of the worst perspectives, you could take AMP, for example. Mm. I mean, here's a stock that's down 77% over the last 10 years. Mm. It's not gambling because their money's still not zero. No, and it's only down 77% if you're one of those people that have... Uh, no stop loss. Yeah, if you don't have a stop or if you've chosen to, to realize that. If you hold on and hope it's going to come back up, well, that's a, that is a bit of a hit. And I hope that's like backing the... 250 to one outsider that's drawn the 13th <laughs> barrier on the race course, you know, it's unlikely to come back. But no, it is a huge myth. People do see trading and investing as being gambling. It genuinely isn't in that you can contain the risk, but more importantly, you can tilt the deck by doing your homework and really learning what you're about. If you're going into it totally blind, see this all the time, you know what it's like, broking business, people open an account, put five or 10 grand in, say, I'll give it a go and see what happens. And I'll tell you what happens, they lose their five or 10 grand. So sure. the people that do that, definitely a gamble. Best investment you'll make is in your education before you start so that you're not gambling. There you go. Investing in the stock market, that is false, that it is gambling. Mm. Let's take it to a really interesting one. I know you had this comment on Facebook and I just heard it as I walked past the uh, hallway before that short selling drives the price down. Now, first of all, what is short selling to our viewers who don't know mm. and does it drive the price down on a stock? 
again, it's interesting, big misbelief out there. You know, I was told the other day, short selling should be banned, it's evil. And it's like, well, why do you think that? And they're unable to come up with a response. So what is short selling? Short selling is something that you do not own. And I know that sounds a bit of a spinner in terms of context uh, and concept. So what you do is borrow something you don't own from somebody, and then you sell it at a high price, and your goal and your view is that you expect prices to fall. And if that is the case, you get the opportunity to sell it at X, buy it back at Y, the lower price, and the difference between X and Y is your profit. In just the same way, if you bought something that goes up in value, you participate in that profit. So you're profit. betting on it going down in price? Well, you're not really betting on it. We've just covered that, I think. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I think, yes, you're, you're, you're taking the view, let's call it that. Um, we're taking the view that the price is going to go down and you're looking to capitalize uh, on it by setting yourself up. Trick question. A, yeah, with a, uh, with a smart strategy called shorting. Now. One of the misbeliefs out there, and look, there's a little bit more in there. Think about it this way. All right, let's, let's put this in really simple terms. Let's say I'm having a party at my house. It's good Friday. There's no bottle shops open, no pubs open, and I run out of beer. Now, I'm going to lean over the fence to my neighbor, being you, and say, Mitch, can I borrow a couple of slabs of beer? We've run out over here. You pass it over the fence, and then, given how charitable I am, I'll then sell those beers on at 10 bucks a beer to my guests, uh, and so that 24 slab of beers earned me $240 in, in, in revenue. That's what I've sold it for, 240 bucks. Sure. Now, on Saturday, Dan Murphy is going to be open, so I'm going to swing over there and get a couple of cases of beer to replace the ones I borrowed from you. Now, if I buy them back at 60 bucks a slab, and give you two cases of beer back, you don't care that I paid $60 a slap for them. You no. just want what I borrowed back and intact. And there's probably a little bit of a dial-up and a, and a fee for you in doing that. Now, from my perspective, I've been able to sell a case of beer at 10 bucks a bottle, $240 for a case, and then buy it back for 60, squaring the trade. So there's a different way of thinking about short selling. Most people know about beer, so it's probably quite a reasonable well, there you example. Go. Now, why doesn't it drive markets down? And this is the key point. People think that in times of crisis, um, that when people that are pro-traders short the market, it pushes prices down, and that is just simply not true, and here's why. Short selling, the ability to profit in a falling market enables uh, groups in the market, like a market maker, and people in the options market, to be able to offset their risk. So if you can profit from a fall in the share price, you're gonna short sell, and in doing that to square things out, and this might sound a little bit confusing for people that are new to this, you also have the ability to then create a put option where you can sell someone insurance on their shares. Now, sure. you might buy a put option and protect your shares at that level. If the price goes down, I have to buy them at that high price, they're worth less. Sure. So as someone that issues a put option, I want a better short, so I've I've actually hedged my position out here. So it's like the reverse covered call, which is mm. what we specialize our teaching in. Now, if I'm not able to short sell, I'm not also able to create a put option in the marketplace, and as a result, you then have no ability to protect your shares. And in times of crisis, if you can't protect them, you're going to sell them. Sure. And as soon as you're going to sell them, the it's price. going to push the price down. So it's such a massive misbelief. Short selling does not push prices down. It actually helps support the market. Now, ASIC actually banned short selling during the GFC, and all it, continued, it actually ended up doing was pushing the market sell down much, much harder because people that are pro-traders and people that are selling investors had no ability to hedge. So their only thing to do is go sell the lot, push the price down. So shorting doesn't push markets down, it actually does the reverse. There you go, nice and debunked. Thank you very much, Mr. B. Now, third one here, this is, uh, we've got a couple of case studies, I've, d I've done my research on this. Investing in IPOs makes you rich. True or false? Mm, can do. <laughs> if, if, if there's one thing, I guess if I was to describe IPO investing, I think we've covered this in a, in a previous podcast. It's one of our earlier podcasts, I think around that sort of five or six mark okay. in terms of episodes. It'd be interesting to go back and have a listen to that one. It would. Um, I think IPO investing, 
out of virtually anything you can do in the stock market is very much a gamble. Uh, and part of the reason for that is that you are having the price dictated to you by the, the company that's listing and of course the investment banks and sponsoring brokers that are underwriting the, uh, the listing or the IPO. And as much as they're you know, quite analysis focused, there's still a, a decent level of bias in that. Would I be correct? I think that will be a fair and cynical comment to make because they have a very vested interest in getting the best deal for their client, which is the highest price, sure. which may or may not be in the best interest of the consumer. Sure. Uh, and there are plenty of examples of that. Now, IPOs, when they work out, can be absolutely fantastic. And IPOs, when they don't work out, can be an absolute disaster. And you know, last year, there's plenty, and I think we've talked about them in the past. If we look at Uber, I think Uber is down something like 61% from its IPO right now. Correct. Um, Lyft, another one in the same business, I think it's down not as much, about 30, 35%, something in that sort of ballpark since its IPO. Elsewhere in the Luckin Coffee, it's a stock we've traded actually a few times, very profitable when we traded it. Um, that's a dog's breakfast. It's down 93%. It's actually a, a terrible. 93% from its IPO price of $20, it's about $1.50, $1.60, something like that now. Uh, and look, it's been um, a fraud within the business on the part of the CEO and CFO. Uh, but you, know, you look at what you were buying as an IPO investor, it's very much not what you've got. So there are three really distinct examples of things that haven't panned out. On the other side of the coin, if we look at Saudi Aramco as the world's largest IPO, yeah, that one's actually worked out pretty well. I think it came on at about 20 bucks, and there was a bit of a dip as oil prices caved in, sure. and it's now back above its IPO level. Well, there you go. But you're in the lap of the gods with that. Uh, another one that was a bit shaky for some of the people riding on it, no pun intended, and that was Peloton over in the US. Uh, Peloton's a really interesting business, actually. They, um, I first came across them in New York. I was staying where one of my best mates place up on the uh, Upper West there, just overlooking Central Park. Beautiful. Lovely pad, you wouldn't want to pay for it, but you did. <laughs> well. and, and, and downstairs and across there's a Peloton, and it's actually like a spin class type um, gym. All you do there is cycle. And that, that's, that was my first experience with Peloton. And they listed them, why are you gonna list a company that just does spin classes? But what they've been able to do is they also sell the exercise bikes, and that's effectively okay. businesses. But again, you look at it and go, yeah, I don't really understand where the ongoing revenue is coming from. And where Peloton has really done very, very well, during COVID, obviously people can't go to the gym, so they've been selling bikes. But what they've created is that online community so you can register for classes and challenges where you're actually competing with other people. Which is super scalable and very cost-effective. Massively so, and the share price has reflected that. It's actually turned out to be an absolute champ. It was, it was down 11% day after IPO. Most people are looking at it and going, ah, oh, geez, not another one. And if you've stuck to your, uh, your guns with that one and held in there, it's turned out to be very, very good. Great business because they've leveraged off their core skill and just perfect business in the COVID environment. That's why it's done so well. So, you know, there have been some big winners in there. Sure. But, you know, we've just talked about uh, five or six IPOs and, and three of them didn't work. So, sure. you know, there's your 50-50 or so odds. Yeah, definitely gambling in my mind. So you think it's a little bit more of a speculative play when you're investing in IPOs? Absolutely, because you aren't making the decision and neither is the market in terms of where fair value is, it's being dictated to you. Whereas with something that's traded for a period of time, you can see where the market has genuinely assessed its value and then you can take a position based on your analysis around that. A lot and more robust. Just out of interest, how do you pick a good IPO? I know we could go way off topic on this, but just quickly for the viewers out there who might be interested in IPOs, mm. what? What, what kind of analysis do you use to, to choose an, an IPO? For, for anything that I've ever invested in, actually, two, two, two of my really good investments when I was a kid, one was in a demutualization and an IPO, and actually was my first 
um, five bagger, five hundred percent return. Wow! Back. So um, maybe I should have just stuck to doing that. You know? <laughs> um, the, the the key things that you look for uh, again, we go back to this litmus test, which we talked of several times in recent podcasts, and that's you know where does this business fit in in the future? And, and Peloton's a really good example of that from a business that's just a gym centric business where they've taken a physical presence and they created this virtual presence and community to support that. So it's a very forward-looking business. You'd argue that companies like Uber and Lyft are also very forward-looking businesses. They've disrupted the technology and the sectors they're in, but they're not able to turn a profit from that. So you've got to have that ability to create profit. Now, when you look at an IPO, you, you, you look at the offer document uh, and, uh, and, and all the details that go alongside it but that's written by the company and its investment bankers and typically it's going to project a pretty strong story. Sure. Whether that story is right is another matter and if we take WeWork as an example of that, I mean that would have gone down ultimately I think is one of the biggest corporate frauds in history had SoftBank um, not pulled the IPO for very good reason and that's the fact that the emperor had no clothes, there was no business behind it, there was no real cash flow, there was no plan on what to do with the money. Yet anyone reading the prospectus with a view to investing in it could have really been taken to the cleaners. And that's where the regulator's got to play a very, very strong hand in making sure that what the company says it's going to do is indeed what it does. Right, okay. Well, there you have it. Thank you very much, Mr. B. Fourth one, you need lots of money to invest in the stock market. Is that true or false? No, not at all. Um, you don't need lots of money. You just need to start. Um, you know, people think that the stock market is, I guess, for the big end of town and the big instos, and having a smaller amount of money to work with can actually be something of an advantage. You know, if you're running big portfolios, got a couple of buddies that run, you know, multi-billion dollar portfolios. Stressful job. It is, and, and, and getting in and out of positions is hard work because you move the market just simply by virtue of your size. So if you're trying to sell, you, you end up selling into a falling market that becomes quite tricky. As a smaller investor, it's much easier, you're more nimble, you can get in, you can typically get better fills and so on and so forth. Um, and these days, you know, getting started with you know, five, 10 grand is a realistic proposition. You know, in the past, um, you think about brokerage, for example, 1% or $85, and there's still people that charge that, believe it or not. Um, it's a fair whack. It is a fair whack, and if you're a small account, it, you just can't absorb a position and cover your brokerage and come out of it making a profit. Sure. So you know, lower transaction fees have paved the way to better start with smaller amounts of money. Again, if you're looking to get started, um, doesn't matter what you've got, get started. Just get started. Obviously, you know, you can't start with 20 bucks. Let's get real about this. You know, five sure. to 10 is probably a good number. Five to 10,000 is a good number. Um, you know, let's plant the flag at seven grand just to pick a, a number that we can talk to. Yeah. And, and, and get yourself started with that. And if you don't have that number yet, get yourself educated so that when you do get the money, you know what to do with it. Because if you don't get educated, even if you have the money, you're likely to do something fairly frivolous. You might end up putting it in an IPO like WeWork or Luckingham <laughs> and it's all gone. Um, yeah, so get yourself educated with that as well. But you can start small and get a building. I think my first investment was a couple of hundred pounds. That's all I had saved up at the time. Uh, and I dusted that pretty quickly because I didn't know what I was doing. You're only three years old when you made that first trade, <laughs> weren't you? No, a little bit older than that. Maybe three years old in dog years, but um, <laughs> I think, um, uh, yeah, the second time around, I had a, a, yeah, a little bit more firepower to work with, and I think I ended up getting started. Uh, I think it was about, f I think it was about five grand or something like that. I there you go. What I, what I started out with, and, uh, and and kicked off with that, so it's definitely doable. Uh, sure. Yeah, but we put up these stories of when I get that amount of money, I'll start. Just start, then you'll get that money. If exactly. you put that gold, it's out of reach. It's not going to happen. Sure. And we have a whole, for example, our ETF program, which mm. is perfect for smaller account sizes that maybe won't be super hands-on. Well, that's the thing. At the moment, with interest rates being so low, there's almost no incentive to save cash at the bank. Okay, oh. you need some cash to cover your bills, but there's no point, point having cash as a form of investment. 
Um, so get it stuck up uh, an ETF of some sort, you know, get invested in the Qs in the NASDAQ, for example, and just forget it and just let it sit there for a, for a period of time growing for you because, you know, that's, that's probably a smarter thing, I think, to do with your money. It's not a gamble. Technology is going to be a bigger part of the future than smaller. Um, and, and getting some exposure to that, for example, would be the advice I'd give my kids rather than putting money in the bank. Well, there you go. That ties in a few of those myths. So thank you for that, Andrew. Last and final one, we may have a bonus one at the end, I'm not too sure yet, but the last one, the whole notion of making money in the stock market is to buy low, sell high, turn water into wine. Is that how it works? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a lovely story though, isn't it? Um, you know, and, and this notion of picking the bottoms. Uh, and and selling at the tops. Yeah, it's, no one does that on any level of consistent basis. You might do it once or twice and you've got a great war story for your friends, but you know, the reality is to better do that on a very consistent basis is not impossible. The challenge that you have trying to buy low is that you're buying something that, say for example, has fallen you know, through the COVID scenario. Um, you've had a market that's dropped pretty heavily and if you're trying to get in on the ding-dong low, and we actually weren't far off it in all fairness, right. um, you know, you're guessing that that actually is the bottom. You're taking the gamble, if we go back to some of the other things that we talked about, that that's the actual bottom of the market. Personally speaking, I would prefer to see much more confirmation. Not we leave it months to decide, but wait to see it coming off its lows and start to power ahead. Look for that money flow coming in. And we use technical indicators to justify exactly that. Exactly right? right. So that's how, you know, to avoid gambling and guessing that's the low, we're using a, a series of screens and strategies to ensure that we're buying into momentum. Very, very important shot. Um, but this notion of buying low and selling high, um, take the easy money out of the middle. Or better yet, buy high and sell higher. There you go. Or buy at a price and sell for the same price and still make money. That's why we use covered calls and cash on demand. You know, I bought ANZ for 18 bucks and sold it for 18 bucks and made 9%. That's the joy of using options. The share price doesn't have to move sure. in order for you to be able to make your money. So, you know, buy low, sell high. Great story, great cover for a book, great way to try and sell a course. Or we've got this proprietary measure that does it. It's all BS. It doesn't work on a consistent basis. Get in when the momentum's happening. Don't leave it too late. Have a plan to take the emotion out of it. Definitely don't gamble. Make sure it's not an IPO. <laughs> and then you go. Uh, but no, no, buy low and sell high. That's that's a myth. It's, that's a myth. It's too hard to do. All right, debunked. You can be, you can be a ninja at it. And I've got some good buddies, really serious players in the market. You know, these guys are wheeling around billions of dollars in the marketplace, and they can do that. And well, there you go. Teams of analysts, every bit of software known to man. They stack the deck, they play the safe odds, take the easy money out of the middle. There you go, debunked, you heard it here first. Thank you, Mr. B. And the last one, the final bonus one, I know we briefly touched bonus. on this before. What have we got for the bonus. tricky, man. What are you gonna do to me? The stock market is only for big boys on Wall Street. Now, we don't have any Wall Street clients in our client base, yet we've helped thousands of everyday mm. Australians. So, working that as a contrast, you know, specifically related to, let's just take us as a proxy. Mm. Why do our clients get the results that they do when they're not these big boys on Wall Street? I think the, the, the key thing is strategy selection. You know, and people talk about Wall Street. What exactly does Wall Street mean? Is it hedge funds? Well, they're unlikely to be on Wall Street. They're probably out in Connecticut and, and, uh, <laughs> or up on Long Island rather than Wall Street. Um, but you know, Wall Street is a connotation of the investment banking space. Yeah. And, and they're looking for stock markets to move up. Most of the time, you know, these big guys now are running quant desks and algo trading and all of this fancy stuff. Um, that's, that's new age finance, which is crushing it in markets. Um, do you have to be there to do that? No, you don't. You've just got to find a strategy that fits you. Um, you know, and, and people always like to chase the, the wind or the allure of outperforming something. You know, success is not relative, it's absolute. You know, and you could go, well, relative to someone I've outperformed, but you might be unhappy in it yourself. It's how you feel about your returns, whether that 
um, based on what you're looking to achieve from a risk perspective. Sure. Um, yeah, you know, if you're a low risk investor and you say, look, I hate risk, and you're pulling down eight percent a year, that's a brilliant return right. for a low risk investor. You know, for a lot of people, we all, <laughs> I wouldn't be interested in eight percent. Well, clearly, to get that, you're going to have to move up the risk spectrum some. Sure. Yeah, to pull down, um, you know, seventy-three percent in one month, like Mark James, one of their clients. You go, wow, he must be taking some big chances. Not at all. He's very measured and controlled in what he did. He's called the market very, very well using what we've taught him. So he's going to be further along the risk spectrum, bigger return there as well, but not way off the reservation taking big chances. So let's bring it back in and talk about absolute return that's right for people. The key thing is to pick the right strategy. You know, and there's so many different strategies available in the marketplace now. You know, you can talk about CFDs, you can talk about e-minis, you can talk about day trading, you can talk about crypto, you can talk about forex, you can talk about margin forex, you can talk about futures, stocks, the list goes ETFs, on. geared ETFs, swaps, warrants, swaps, lipos. You know, there, there's a myriad of different things that you can trade. And rather than try and compete with Wall Street, find your groove in there in terms of the kind of asset or strategy that's going to deliver what you want. Now, for most people, they're looking, if we had a normal distribution curve, and I'd have a whiteboard, we can get something like that, some AV props yeah. in here. What do you think? Why not? We've got a good month. We should do it. We'll have to ask our production manager. See what we can do. So, you know, if we, if we had a normal distribution curve, most people would be looking for something that sits somewhere in the middle that's got enough risk in it to be interesting, but not enough risk to keep you up at night. Sure. And something that's paying out fairly reasonably. So for me, my meat and potato strategy that I drive people to in that space is covered calls, cash on demand as we call it. And if we think about it, it's like the ice cream van of trading. It serves a brilliant soft scoop on a really consistent basis with fairly low levels of risk and very consistent income, which ticks a lot of boxes. Makes sense. People, right? But it's an ice cream band mm. and it serves a vanilla ice cream and if you're lucky there might be a flake or maybe some maybe a raspberry Every now sauce and then. or something if you're really lucky if you're looking for returns outside of that you've got to go to different strategies okay if you're looking at returns beyond that or below that you've got to look at different strategies so it starts with actually what your strategy selection is and most wall street banks aren't involved in the covered call space. It's more typically a retail strategy. I saw some advertising from someone that's supposed to be a competitor, but it's not going to be around much longer. But, you know, and it's all, well, this is the strategy that the big banks use with your money. It's utter rubbish. They don't use this strategy. With what strategy money. is it? Uh, the sort of stuff that prop desks do is not covered calls. Okay, this is a mum and dad strategy that's a terrific income producing strategy. So, you know, that's where our focus will be there. Now, if you want to get into a highly complex algorithmic trading uh, in and out in milliseconds, that's where you're going to go to compete with Wall Street. It's not the game you want to be in. No. You, know, you know, a pretty decent internet plan, probably not on the NBN. Uh, and uh, <laughs> to rent, rent a unit just above the exchange somewhere yeah, in Yeah, exactly. They've got their data terminals on all that in there. So, you know, Wall Street's got its own game that it's playing. Okay, and it's in such a myriad of financial instruments. So, you know, for retail investors, don't go to that place. You can, they're inaccessible for you to trade anyway, uh, high frequency trade, all that sort of stuff, that's not for retail investors. Find a nice strategy that serves your purpose, that weighs up risk versus return, plus how much time do you want to put into this too? You know, sure. there's some people out there peddling day trading. I can't, and I've done it, I did it for a living for a while. Yeah, I can't for the life of me think why you'd want to day trade. We did a whole podcast on it. How many people, what was the percentage of people that are successful? 99, oh, sorry, 99% fail or something okay, like so that. So 1% succeed as day traders. So, you know, that's that's another place that you can kind of go to and you think, well, oh, this is my thing. Just find what works for you, time-wise, risk-wise, and return-wise, and where that sort of trifecta comes together. Interesting, we're talking about trifecta, having been talking about gambling <laughs> um, Where that trifecta comes together is probably where you need to drop anchor. And, and, and don't obsess about 
trying to outperform somebody else and, and have performances relative. Just be absolute in what you're aiming for and say, look, if I can make 10, 12, 15, 20% of my money consistently or 30% of my money consistently or 6% consistently on my money, that's my space. And just focus on that. You know, you don't need to be distracted by anybody else. So, you know, in terms of, um, you know, trading and investing is just for Wall Street. No, it's for everybody. It's a big place to go play. You just got to choose the strategy that's going to work best for you because if you can operate and dominate your strategy in your sector, you'll make great money. If you pop up in somebody else's sector, um, a la in the Wall Street space and try and play with those guys, they Eat will the wipe the floor with you. Yeah. You won't even know what happened. You'll be sliced, diced, cry back and out the door before it even happens. There you go. Look, that, that that is really, really good advice, and we can't, cannot stress that enough to carve your niche and just focus on what you're okay. doing, mm-hmm. and having a trading plan to that is paramount. Mm-hmm. Andrew, we've covered off five really, really important myths that a lot of people misconstrue through the stock market. We've also had that quite nice, informative bonus one. We're coming to the end of the broadcast. Is there any final words, overarching, which pertain to myths of the stock market, how to beat those? That's an interesting one, really. I, I think for me, be open. There are so many misbeliefs out there, and you can listen to so many pundits and talking heads. Check out their track record. Find out if they've been around. Find out if they're licensed. Find out what they actually know. You know there's one popped up on my feed the other day. They've been around since March of this year. It's two young guys. Good luck to them. They've built a good following. But what do they really know? Sure. Um, you know, what experience? What have they done? Um, so firstly, find someone that's listen to the right people. And I'm not saying that we're necessarily the right people, but we try and call it as it is uh, in, a, in a pretty straight manner. Second to that, um, you know, there are so many misbeliefs. And just because you've heard something over and over again, it doesn't mean it's right. Sure. You know, buy and hold shares for the long term, best way to make money. Well, we've debunked that myth many times uh, in podcasts and some of the material we've put out. Um, you know, um, you know, buying stocks for dividend is a great income way. You know, they're, they're the misbelief, short selling, as we've talked about today, drives markets down. It's a misbelief, it's incorrect. And if your whole decision making process, what you and our listeners are going to do with their money, if that's guided by something that is just wrong, you're not going to get the outcome you want. And it no. doesn't matter how dyed in the wool you are of that belief, if it's wrong, it is wrong and it's not going to serve you. So what I would say as a piling message for anybody is be open, have a look and actually do proper research and find out what's true, what's false, what is a genuine belief that should be held versus a misbelief that not only is misleading, is one that's likely to cost you thousands, tens of thousands, millions of dollars over the course of your lifetime. And some people won't even entertain investing in the stock market because they see it as gambling. We've dealt with that today. And imagine if you went through your entire life where you missed the opportunity that this great thing called the market creates because of a misbelief that it's actually gambling. You know, be open, get educated, team up with the right people and give it a go. And you'll be amazed where it's gonna take you. Or stay in the bubble, be driven by misbeliefs, be frightened of your own shadow, I wonder why everyone else is getting ahead. Some great advice. Thank you very much, Andrew. And it's a fun place. When you when you get the hang of it, you and I love it. I mean, it's what we live and breathe. Absolutely. Um, day so, absolutely. Look, thank you very much, Mr. Baxter. I think we're going to have to contact the Discovery Channel and see if we can get a revamp of Mythbusters, but keep an eye on there. But look, it's been really good to get your take, and there's some great advice as well as debunking you know, some, some costly mistakes that could be made if you follow you know, some of those points. I'm just imagining you in the barrier on Mythbusters. I think that's all <laughs> Start growing a beard with some glasses on and maybe I'll sit the park. Could be fun, couldn't it? But thanks for having me on today. Pleasure to spend some time with you. Cheers, thank you. There you go, guys. Hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure you give us a review and rating, and we'll look forward to hosting you next week.